The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. taken a few months, but we are back to hear the words of Seamus Heaney tonight. And I wanted to read again from his book-length set of interviews with Dennis O'Driscoll called Stepping Stones. And this is from the second chapter, which is called Growing into Poetry. And as far as I know, this is the longest and the most uh, sustained space that uh, that Heaney gave to talking about how he discovered poetry, I guess you would say, and how he ended up uh, becoming a poet. And so this is all this all predates his first collection, and it begins to bleed into his uh, talking about the first poems that he did write. Dennis O'Driscoll is asking him first of all if he remembered poems or nursery rhymes at home. And he says that it was his mother who first taught us that there was a poem that says, there was a naughty boy and a naughty boy was he. And Seamus Heaney says, one of the great delights of reading John Keats when I was an undergraduate was to discover that he had written those lines impromptu during his tour of Scotland in a letter to his younger sister, Fanny. Until then, it was just another anonymous rhyme, which is a big compliment to it. And right there, I, I, it, it seems worth saying, uh, it's a big compliment because you don't recognize John Keats behind it. Um, at some point, I suppose, most of us who write poems out there, or at least the kind of poet who, who, who listens to a podcast like this also wouldn't mind being such a natural voice on the wind or a natural sound in someone's ear that you just become an anonymous rhyme. You're just there. And uh, indeed, for someone who became as famous as Heaney did, you can see the attraction to uh, to becoming a presence like that as well. Dennis O'Driscoll says, What effect did those rhymes and those poems have on you? And Seamus Heaney says, I'm not sure. The main thing is that they stay with you for a lifetime. Poems learned early on, poems with a truly imaginative quality, end up being sounding lines out to the world and into yourself. I was thinking recently, for example, 
about a two-line poem that has been in my head since I was a youngster, and it says, Two sticks standing, and one across, spells Willie Brennan in the Hillhead Moss. It's what you'd call an unlettered performance, Heaney says, but I've come to realize that it links up with Stephen Dedalus's meditation on Sandy Mount Strand from Joyce's Ulysses, the bit where he thinks, quote, signature of all things I am here to read, end quote. Whoever made up the Hillhead Moss poem was reading the signatures of the world as artfully as any Martian poet. There are the two sticks standing and the one across. Underneath them, of course, there would be the remains of a turf fire, telling us that Willie Brennan had been in the moss all day, and this little contraption he'd set up to boil a can of water for his tea was his signature. I'm not sure what I felt when I first heard the thing over sixty years ago, but it animated and instigated something in the poetry part of me. And Dennis O'Driscoll says, Were you the kind of pupil whose essays were held up by the teacher as a shining example to the rest of the class? And Heaney admits, far from it. I had the name for being good at sums, and as I went up in the ranks, I enjoyed the parsing and general analysis side of English better, the spelling tests and so on. I had no particular gift for writing what were called compositions, and no particular enjoyment of it. But I do remember a moment, early on at St. Columns, when the topic was A Day at the Seaside, and I made a connection between the performative student in me and a more inward creature, the writer-in-waiting, if you like. In the middle of the list of usual expected activities, such as diving and swimming, neither of which I could do, I wrote about going into an amusement arcade to escape from a shower, and being depressed by the wet footprints on the floor and the cold, wet atmosphere created by people in their rained-on summer clothes. This had actually happened to me, so the image and the recording of it had a different feel. Something in me knew that I was on the right, intimate track, but it took me years to follow up. And I should say, it seems to take writers years to uh, to realize that it is those moments that make writing, um, not the things that, uh, w when you think of a writer or a poet as being a special kind of person that you would recognize on the street, or some sort of magician uh, grabbing inspiration from the clouds, uh, you don't end up writing about uh, escaping from the rain as a child and seeing wet footprints on the floor. Um, but when you come to realize that those are the things that make for uh, not just memory, but also for poetry and writing, then you have hit on, then you have really hit onto something. And O'Driscoll asks some more in the same vein, and he quotes Robert Lowell's line that says, why not say what happened? And he says, he asks Heaney, was that still somewhere in your future? And Heaney says, sometimes when I'm talking to students about writing, about the necessity to open that inner path, 
I go back to that day at the seaside essay. In it, I wrote about buying a bucket and a spade and provided all the expected details, except in this case it was all made up, probably because there was a slight element of shame or humiliation involved. Again, I ought to have said what happened, because what happened was far more interesting. And then Dennis O'Driscoll asks him about his first encounter with Gerard Manley Hopkins and his poetry. Uh, Heaney says, it was in St. Columns College when we were studying the prescribed poems in an anthology called A Pageant of English Verse. It was a matter of sensation, like ricochets and chain reactions within the nervous system. Lines from Hopkins like, as tumbled over the rim in roundy wells, stones ring, or rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire-coal chestnut falls, finches' wings. I once said it was like getting verbal goose flesh, and naturally enough, when I wrote my first poems as an undergraduate, a few years later I wrote in Hopkins' speech. Let me see if I can check something here. Um, So Heaney's born in 1939, and he attends St. Columns College, college being something different than uh, what it means in America. He attended that from 1951 to 1957. So you get the, the sense that uh, uh, he's not an undergraduate yet, and he's reading um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. He is uh, from about the age of 12 to about the age of... Uh, 19 or 18 when he would have first discovered this and let's see this is something nice too he talks about uh, he ends up uh, talking about his mother's faith his mother's Catholicism and uh, Dennis O'Driscoll brings up the fact that uh, that uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins was also a Catholic, and what did that have to, did that have any impact on him? And Heaney here is talking about his mother's Catholic faith. He says, uh, It also sprang from sympathy for my mother's situation. I could see that religion was a powerful compensation for her. There she was, doomed to biology, a regime without birth control, nothing but parturition and potato peeling in secula seculorum, and the way she faced it, and in the end outfaced it, was by prayer and sublimation, toiling on in the faith that a reward was being laid up in heaven. She didn't have any simple-minded trust in this, but went with the fiction of it, as it were, lived it as a wager rather than an insurance. It was defiance as much as devotion. Anyhow, the whole theology of suffering, the centrality of sacrifice, of the cross, of losing your life to save it, all that fitted in with what I saw in her. And it is at the very core of Gerard Manley Hopkins' thought. The sestet in his poem, The Windhover, as far as I'm concerned, 
is a versified enunciation of that attitude. And I read that in part uh, because not only does he see, not only is poetry initially a product of religion, and he recognizes religion in poetry, but also the, the importance in Heaney's poetry of his mother and of his parents is all over the place, if you go back and listen to those episodes that I made. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, Talk of versifying and enunciating reminds me of those remarks in your essay, Feeling into Words, about the connection you perceived between the heavily accented consonantal noise, consonantal noise of Hopkins' poetic voice and your own Northern Irish accent. You must be glad not to have grown up in a place given to, quote, standard English. And Heaney says, I taken my degree in English literature and couldn't miss learning that the iambic pentameter had been put on the defensive by Ezra Pound and company from early on. Talk of free verse and sprung rhythm was simply a given of the seminar speak when we were undergraduates. Then, too, in those days, I read a good bit of D. H. Lawrence's poetry, and not just the poetry, the essay on poetry of the living present, for example. I'd got my hands on a big second-hand hardback of Lawrence's literary criticism, and for a while was reading nothing else. At the same time, there was Eliot's selected prose. I just went with the orthodox idea that the age demanded a roughening up of the utterance, an avoidance of smooth numbers. You were meant to hit the stride of living speech. So when I eventually encountered Patrick Kavanaugh's poem, Great Hunger, and Ted Hughes' poem, View of a Pig, and so on, part of the excitement was in their spoken force. So that's what I was after in those early poems. And he says, uh, and he also speaks later in the same paragraph, in favor of an Anglo-Saxon diction. And there was also the fact that I did have a genuine response to Old English poetry, the Old English poetry we had to study. I think that the poems, the Anglo-Saxon poems, The Wanderer, The Seafarer, and The Battle of Maldon might have established some sort of register for me. And then there's just this sentence on the next page. He says, the writing current has to flow in your limbs and joints, and the linguistic experiences that through my switches were in English. And that is him explaining, I suppose, why he decided not to be a Gaelic, uh, a Gaelic language poet. And he talks more about the respect that he had for the poets who did write in Gaelic, but that he was not one of them. And uh, that reminds me of Joyce making the exact same uh, determination very early on, that uh, it's very possible that the English monarchy uh, uh, took Ireland's language from them, but they were going to get their revenge, as it were, by using it better than the English ever could. And for Heaney, I'll just read the sentence again. The writing current has to flow in your limbs 
and joints as the linguistic experiences and the linguistic experiences that through my switches were in English. And this next question from Dennis O'Driscoll. Again, in light of your nationalist background, I'm surprised that you gravitated, even graduated, towards Queen's University in Belfast rather than University College or Trinity College in Dublin. Did the Catholic Church's ruling against attendance by Catholics at Trinity College influence your decision? And this is a wonderful question because it assumes uh, this is something that, that uh, people who are in the know with culture or poetry or painting or whatever it is, they assume that everyone else uh, knew, knows everything else you do and that they knew it around the same time that you did. So you assume that Heaney made these, uh, these decisions about where to go to university um, based on something that must have had something to do with his religion or something like that. When in fact it's something entirely else, and as Heaney says immediately, Dublin just wasn't on the horizon. Even Belfast was far away to me. In those days I was outside the loop. My family had no familiarity with universities, no sense of the choices that were there, no will to go beyond the known procedures, no confidence, for example, about phoning up the local education authority and seeking clarification about what was possible. No phone, even, for God's sake. As far as we were concerned, Dublin didn't mean University College and Trinity College. It meant Croke Park, where the All-Ireland Football Final and the All-Ireland Hurling Final were played. What happened to me, Heaney says, in the first three decades of my life wasn't quite a matter of personal decision. It was more or less typical and generational. People of my age from that background were all just carried along on the conveyor belt of the times, the qualifying exam and 11-plus scholarships, the boarding school chosen, by the way, because there was no specifically Catholic secondary school in the Mid-Ulster area where I could attend as a day pupil, then the university scholarship, then graduation, the job, the wedding, the mortgage, the car, the family, then, well, then the question asked by Plato's ghost, what then? And as it seems, it took Heaney 30 years to, as he says, break out of what otherwise seemed to be uh, his own, uh, the preconceived notions that he was surrounded by himself. Um, there's just one sentence later on where he is asked about uh, how he never got into drinking much when he was a teenager, or at all, really. He says, uh, it kept me off the streets, so to speak, kept me in the library. I've never regretted missing the teenage drinking, but never regretted getting started in my 20s, which is a nice way of putting it. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, I'd like to ask you what university taught you about literature or life that you couldn't have learned of your own accord. Has the reading you undertook at that stage remained a bedrock resource for you 
ever since. And I read these lists in a way um, for the same reason I mentioned them uh, uh, months ago when I first started reading from the interviews in this book. It, it's not really to drop the names of whoever was in university life or literary life in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, uh, 60, 70 years ago by now. Um, it is to just show people that these catalogs are just what people have and that all of us have them. Um, the, the wonderful thing about Joyce's Ulysses, I think, as I get older, it's not even, uh, the joy isn't even in reading it. It is in knowing how thoroughly and down to the, down to the uh, sidewalk pebble he was able to uh, get that city into a book. And it's not because it's Dublin. He didn't do it because it was Dublin, as if Dublin were important. He did it because it was his world and it was his home. And we should all be invited to do that kind of thing with our own home. And in this case, um, Heaney's lists of books and authors uh, shouldn't be something that we need to run out and copy. Um, I'll go out and get uh, Mort Darthur uh, because Seamus Heaney read it. It should be a prompt for us to say, well, what are the books or whatever it is that I depend upon that have become a bedrock resource for me ever since I was 20 years old or so. So, Dennis O'Driscoll says, has the reading you undertook at that stage remained a bedrock resource for you ever since? And he says, definitely. In the first part of me, there's still that student coming for the first time on John Webster, Christopher Marlowe, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, Gawain and the Green Knight, Wordsworth's The Prelude, Things that entered the system then have stayed with me. A feel for Anglo-Saxon poetry, for Thomas Hardy, for D.H. Lawrence. What did I get as a student that I couldn't have gotten on my own? A sense of the whole historical picture, I suppose. The layering of the language from Anglo-Saxon to Hiberno-English. The Eliotesque sense of tradition. And... If I can make a pause here and just mention this. I remember when um, the first time I really got into uh, the Anglo-Saxons, not necessarily Gawain and the Green Knight, but uh, Battle of Maldon and Beowulf. And for me, this was, let's see, the summer of 2002, when I was living as a caretaker in a double wide out in the woods of Ashtabula, Ohio, with an elderly, with an elderly man who uh, spent much of the day asleep, and so I was on the porch or in my room uh, reading, and uh, or out on the back deck doing uh, push-ups and then reading poetry or walking the long gravel path uh, from the double wide out to the road and walking slowly because I was walking with a book and so on. Um, that was my version of that. And I suppose even before then, uh, I first read Eliot's Wasteland in 1997. And between 97 and 2002, you might say, 
um, I was able to, I think, find the sense that Heaney is talking about, the Eliotic sense of tradition and the layering of language from Anglo-Saxon up until now. Um, I was able to do that, but the, but the difference, and I'm sure other people have been able to do that on their own ever since, and even before Heaney, the difference is that it was given in such a way that he got a piece of paper at the end of it, uh, whereas I never really did. And that piece of paper is what got him uh, into other areas and other jobs and an entirely different kind of life. And I've wondered sometimes if I shouldn't have followed that more uh, traditional way, uh, as he says here, a more traditional way into tradition. And that's just a question I think of every now and then. And so then uh, Dennis O'Driscoll asks Heaney, what reading outside of class did you do? And Heaney says this, I went through a phase of reading thrillers by John Dixon Carr, those old dark green and white penguin mysteries. And I was always into P.G. Wodehouse, the odd novel by Maurice Walsh or Canon Sheehan. I wasn't by any means a voracious reader, but I did know the contents of the Belfast bookshops, more or less by heart, especially the poetry shelves. Mullins in Donegal Palace, Donegal Place, was my cave of gazing. But even then, they didn't have a very extensive selection. A.P. Wavell's Other Men's Flowers, and early Yeats selected, a collected Louis McNeese, the one that brought the work up to the late 1940s. Moira O'Neill's Songs of the Glens of Antrim, Percy French's Prose, Poems, and Parodies. I actually bought more books in the second-hand shops in Smithfield Market. Henry Hall's and You Need a Bookshop. Some of the volumes I still have at home, my Tennyson Collected and my Goldsmith, for example, were picked up in those old places. They were also terrific for classical texts. In those days, there would be a big end-of-the-year trade in school and university textbooks. I remember the smell of G's fluid and musty old bindings, and a mangaress, who was like the weird sister in the alcoves, a manageress, sorry, a manageress, who was like the weird sister of the alcoves, and her brown shop coat and brown horn-rimmed glasses. And I bet if my listeners were the types to email me, I could probably fill episodes until the end of my life with anecdotes from people if I just said, email me about your favorite bookshops from when you're 18 or 19 or 20 years old. And this is, this is an interesting thing here. Uh, O'Driscoll asks Heaney about uh, what it was like when he saw uh, Louis McNeese read uh, uh, live. Uh, he saw a reading given by Louis McNeese. And uh, he says to Heaney, uh, you mentioned that his collected poems kept you, quote, at a reader's distance. What did you mean? And Louis McNeese, I guess in the, by the mid-50s, had to have been a huge presence. Uh, on the poetry scene, especially for an Irish kid, and uh, this is what Heaney says about it. 
put it this way. Some poets and poetry you admire in the way that you admire produce in a market. Natural, beautiful stuff. Delightfully there in front of you, thickening your sense of being alive. But you're still looking at it. You're savoring it, but you can move on to the next display. Then there are other poets and poetry that turn out to be more like plants and growths inside you. It's not so much a case of inspecting the produce as of feeling a life coming into you and through you. You're Jack and you are Jack, and at the same time you are also the beanstalk. You are the ground and the growth all at once. There's no critical distance as yet. Patrick Kavanaugh and Ted Hughes had the latter effect on me, but not Lewis McNeese. And that reminds me, uh, I received an email from a very good friend who was one of the earliest listeners of this podcast, and he said, you know, through all of the poetry of Ted Hughes that you've read on your podcast, he still strikes me as cold. I can't quite get into him. And 20 years ago or so, I may have gotten that email from somebody and maybe been offended or hurt or I or would want to rush out and try to convince them otherwise. But the first thought I had was how important it is that I should hear that, that we should all hear something like that, that, uh, that Heaney is talking about poets and poetry that turn out to be more like plants and growths inside you. In many ways, we can't control which of those poets uh, come into us in that way and which ones do not. And that is worth saying any time that we begin to think that whatever we're, whatever we're spouting as opinion uh, is actually dogma or gospel. It never actually is. So I'm sure there's someone else out there. I'm sure there are many people out there who would prefer a good Lewis McNeese poem over a Patrick Kavanaugh or a Ted Hughes or whatever ne other names you can even think of. Um, near the end of this chapter, it says, um, was there any real prospect that as the eldest son, you might follow in your father's footsteps as a farmer or as a cattle dealer? And Heaney says, once I went to St. Columns, and remember he was there at the age of 12. That's when he first attended. Once I went to St. Columns, I suppose there was a presumption all around that whatever I did at the end of my time there, I wouldn't be back on the farm. I was being, quote, educated. And that meant being set a bit apart. And in spite of what I've said, about enjoying work on the farm during the summer. I never had a desire to get involved in any serious way in cattle dealing. I was familiar with the milieu of fair hills and cattle pens, and I knew men in the trade, and I enjoyed the banter and the bidding and the bargaining, slapping hands, throwing up the hands, walking away, pretending you were at your limit. It was terrific theater, and I didn't feel out of it, but still, I didn't have an ambition to grow up and do it. And there are a handful of poems about uh, memories Heaney has of going with his father to these uh, cattle dealing events, and they're great poems. 
And it just says something, I suppose, about uh, Heaney's parents that uh, they were essentially sending their son off into what to them was, uh, it must have seemed, a strange or an alien world. Um, on the one hand, it, as I began this episode by saying, uh, his mother knew her Longfellow. She would read Longfellow to him, uh, uh, religious poetry, and lots of other stuff. Um, but it must have been something else entirely for a mother and a father at that time in, uh, in the part of Ireland where Heaney was on the farm, quite literally, uh, to be giving their son up to language, to not working, as digging says, uh, not working with, um, not working with the spade, but with the pen. And it says something that about them and about that family that I don't think I've ever read a remark from Heaney that suggested uh, there was ever a negative reaction to that movement. Um, it's just nice. And so the last question in this chapter says, W.H. Uh, Auden once described William Wordsworth as, quote, a person who early in life had an intense experience or a series of experiences about inanimate nature, which he spent the rest of his poetical life trying to describe, end quote. Can you, Seamus Heaney, identify with that William Wordsworth? And Heaney says, the early in-life experience has been central to me, all right, but I'd say you aren't so much trying to describe it as trying to locate it. The amount of sensory material stored up or stored down in the brains and the body's systems is inestimable. It's like a culture at the bottom of a jar, although it doesn't grow, I think, or help anything else to grow unless you find a way to reach it and touch it. But once you do, it's like putting your hand into a nest and finding something beginning to hatch out in your head. And that's a nice way of thinking about it too, about uh, how many people come across language uh, through song or nursery rhyme or poetry or just the sounds of words. I've mentioned uh, um, the chapters in the Wizard of Oz books as being something that struck me. The, the bount of Bunnybury, I think, is one of the phrases. Things like that. And that is sort of a good lesson for any poet out there, but especially a young person who isn't quite sure where to go with these things. And they might be tempted to go into the merely political, or the merely theoretical, or the merely uh, faddish uh, ways of doing poetry or doing writing. And it's nice to step back for a second, and I'll read this again and that will be it. Step back and imagine what your version of this answer would be, and uh, what it would mean to follow this impulse uh, as closely as you possibly could, rather than the dictates of anyone else outside of you. And Heaney says, I'll repeat it, 
the amount of sensory material stored up or stored down in the brains and the body systems is inestimable. It's like a culture at the bottom of a jar, although it doesn't grow, I think, or help anything else to grow unless you, unless you find a way to reach it and touch it. But once you do, it's like putting your hand into a nest and finding something beginning to hatch out in your head. And I don't know of a, a better end to an episode that we've ever had than uh, with an image like that. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.